This evening, January 3rd, 2021. I'm sure that we're all rejoicing that 2020 is over and behind us. It was certainly a challenging year in a number of different ways, but we can look back on it and we can see what we often can only see when we really look back on things, and that's we can see God's hand. We can see his provision, and sometimes it's difficult to see those things when we're going through the challenges. In many cases, these were health challenges, these were economic challenges, and significant emotional challenges. All of us felt it to one degree or another. And so we certainly want to open the new year with the idea that we're going to make a commitment to be in prayer regularly, and we're going to make a commitment to be studying God's Word. As you know, I encourage you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock as part of the adult Bible study time, our regular services at 11 a.m., and uh, 6 p.m. on Sundays. At this point, we're doing it through a podcast form. Certainly, the church is open to returning to physically meeting on Sunday evenings, but at this point, it's in a podcast form. And then Wednesday evening at 6 o'clock is the prayer meeting and Bible study time. There are other ministries that the church supports, at least uh, indirectly, as in providing a hosting place for them to meet. Things like um, the Torah Club, studying really studying Christ through an Old Testament lens. That group uh, meets here regularly, and we would be happy to hook you up with individuals who organize that program. That uh, involves people who are not just folks here from Calvary, but also those who come from other churches in the community. And then we host uh, the activities of the Gaylord Right to Life chapter, including its Teens for Life chapter. All of these things are items that we're, we're very pleased to host, and even though some of those are not ministries of Calvary Baptist, we're certainly happy to support them. Now that being said, as we begin a new series this evening, you've heard me talk before about one of the challenges to the Christian faith is that we must understand why we believe what we believe. It certainly is essential to believe, and in many ways we come to faith with the faith of a child. The Holy Spirit calls, the Holy Spirit convicts us, we sense that conviction, we have a sense of brokenness, we realize that we're sinners in need of forgiveness and in need of redemption, and then the Holy Spirit moves mightily and removes what those barriers are to us coming to a saving faith. And the moment that we first believe, we are declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God. We are justified by faith based upon the sacrifice, the price that was paid for us through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. These are core doctrinal beliefs that, to be honest with you, um, all the branches of Christianity would at least, uh, on the surface, affirm the things that I said. But where it begins to become challenging is that they all have a little different understanding of how it functions. And that's where you really end up with two different, uh, two different divisions, those who are born again, saved by grace Christians, and those who probably are not because they're so focused on some other means of salvation usually one form or another of works. And many of the people who fall into that second category don't realize it. They truly believe that they are saved, and we need to pray for them. 
That being said, as people who have been saved by God's grace, we always need to be reminded and remind one another that we are saved by God's grace, not of our works. There is nothing about things that we have done that should be considered better than anyone else. It is all of God's grace, and we should never have a, an attitude that has even the slightest element of pridefulness or haughtiness about it. We need to love our friends and neighbors who come from other Christian backgrounds who may not yet have a personal relationship with Jesus. In other words, very often we do come to a saving faith, but we don't go any deeper than that. We come to faith as a child, whether that is an age factor or just simply in terms of the, the mindset. We have to come to a saving faith with the same mind as of a child. The problem is that there are so many churches and so many denominations that basically stop there. They never develop a richness of faith in uh, their church members or in their, their attenders. They have a, 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 an understanding of Scripture that is an, an inch deep. In other words, they do not understand why they believe what they believe. Now, you've heard me talk numerous times about how the emphasis on memorization is not a bad thing at all. Scripture memorization is a good thing. However, many of them stop there. In some cases, they discourage digging inside the text. They discourage looking under the hood, as I call it. They discourage looking at original language. They discourage understanding the other views so they better understand why we believe what we believe. You know that I feel that that's a mistake that some of those churches make, and let's be sure that we're not one of those. And so tonight, we're going to begin a whole series of podcasts that will probably take us through a good chunk of the winter, and we're going to be try to we're going to try to be better informed about why we believe what we believe. This means that we need to understand the history. We need to understand at least some of the differences between us and people from other Christian groups. And so this is going to have a heavy emphasis on history, and I hope that you'll find it interesting. But remember, just like the Torah club that meets here, they're not attempting to try to convert us to become Jews. They're trying to use an understanding of the Old Testament and a Jewish lens to help us better understand Christ and for that matter, why, when the Messiah came, why his own people didn't recognize him. So that um, being said, I'm going to uh, stop the recording for just a second, and then I'm going to go and do what's called a screen sharing so that you can see the graphic on here. And this is something that uh, if you're listening to just audio, that's fine. But if you have a large enough screen to be able to see what's on screen, I encourage you to use that at this point, and that will help inform you better as we continue this conversation. Now, if you take a look at the screen that you can see on your computer, this is a chart that tries to give us some idea of the way that all these different branches of Christianity have come about. And yes, it really does look like of Heinz 57 variety, doesn't it? Or I've used the term before, Baskin-Robbins and its 31 flavors. There are people in every one of these divisions of Christianity that are true, saved, by grace, born-again believers. And there are people in every one of these divisions that are not yet saved by grace. And so we need to be praying for them. 
If you look at the top of the chart here, you will see up here the early Christian church. And of course, you might say, what comes before that? If there was something before that up here, it would be in Old Testament. It would, of course, be the nation of Israel. It would be the Jews. And the idea was is that God had spoken to the Jews, and it was through their story that he told his story. And salvation was available through the grace of God to those who were Jews, faithfully practicing Jews, or those who converted and became Jews. They were saved by grace just as we are, but they knew of a coming Messiah. And we spent the better part of, um, of 2020 going through the book of Exodus and explaining all of that. These are reasons why it's so important to remember that in the Old Testament, salvation was still by grace. The law was given, among other things, to convince them of their need for that grace. And so it's important that we remember that, that we not lose sight of that. But let's fast forward now to the first century. Christ comes to the earth. He is born in Bethlehem, lives about 33 years, lives a perfect sinless life during that time, has actually a reasonable following, is quite popular with the people, but is not very popular with the leaders, both of the government, uh, specifically there in southern Israel, the, um, the, the king and the Roman occupiers. But he isn't popular with the Jewish temple leadership either. He's a threat to their authority and to their place in society. So what happens is they accuse him and he is put to death. I've often said it's perhaps the greatest injustice in human history, but it was part of God's plan. And then he is buried, rises again three days later, just as he said, spends 40 days among the people, many public appearances, including some to some large groups, and then, and then ascends back to heaven. And the apostles continue on. And they plant all these seeds that fall into the area at the top of this category is what would be called the early Christian church. The early Christian church. Now I'm going to pop this up just a little bit and see whether or not we can see this. Okay, The early Christian church would have been in that first, second, and probably third century. And that would be the same roots from which certainly we trace our lineage to, but so do all these other groups. And you might say, what are these other groups? Well, the first representation that was really heavily organized became the Roman Catholic Church, which was because the emperor, Constantine, at least claimed to convert to Christianity. There's all kinds of questions about that. And there's all kinds of issues there, particularly in that it was emerging. Basically, he couldn't beat the Christians, so he joined them. There's just all sorts of issues there. But there are many things that the early Roman Catholic Church took some very firm stances on that we need to be grateful for because they preserved key doctrines, including that Christ was fully God and fully man, that Mary was a virgin. So the, the virgin birth, they stood very firmly uh, 
in, in, in favor of and the concept of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are all things that had it not been for the, the staunchness of that early church in the 3rd and 4th century and 5th century there, the early Roman Catholic Church, uh, who knows what would have become of those doctrines. God used the early Roman Catholic Church. Now, as time passed, of course, there were all kinds of problems that came up. But let's give credit where it's due. God used the early church. Now, when we get to, oh, you know, in the, the, the 1000s, 1056 is often a, a year that's talked about a lot. There was tension between the East and the West. And what you have to understand is, remember, this is all before anybody even, at least over there, even knew that North America and South America were here. The known world at the time would have been what we would call Europe, the Mediterranean area, the Middle East, and Northern Africa. And that region were pretty much the known world. I mean, they knew that there were countries and there were peoples further to the East, but there was just a lot of unexplored territory back then. But there was tension between the East and the West with the with the, the West being centered in Rome and the East being centered in Constantinople, named after Constantine, today modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. And that tension within the church, because remember this also, back then the church and what we call the state, the, the government, if you will, had a, a, quite an unholy alliance some of the functions of the state were given to the church to carry out, including, essentially, birth records. And some of the matters with baptism go back to that function. And when we get around in the weeks ahead to talking about baptism and understanding our, our basis for baptism and the, the basis of others for baptism, once we understand that a little more, you'll understand this connection between the church and the state and so many of these other countries. But you ended up with a situation where you had a, a split there in that, um, in that 11th century there, the, the 1000s. And it was a split between the East and the West. For one thing, the Catholic Church didn't recognize the Pope because they ended up with three different people claiming to be the Pope. One in France, one in Rome, uh, who was functioning as the Pope at the time, and then one over in modern-day Turkey in Constantinople. And that was where this branch formed over here that I'm circling, Eastern Orthodoxy. Today, the Eastern Orthodox Church has produced divisions such as the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox and Serbian Orthodox and Latvian and all of those countries that today we know as Eastern Europe, the, the former Soviet bloc. Okay? And there were some differences in there. There was also over further to the east, what was known as Oriental Orthodoxy. But the point was is that they divided over some things, and we will, in weeks to come, talk about those doctrinal issues. They're very interesting, and you might find, actually, that some of the reasons for their dividing are things that we would be sympathetic to. And a lot of them came down to the Nicene Creed and a language in there that was confusion over who is the Holy Spirit? Is he 
co-equal to the Father and the Son, or is he actually the Spirit of the Son? And so there's some interesting debates about that. And I think I'll be able to make it approachable for you. But that's what is known as Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox, because Orthodox is a term that we use for anybody that's a true believer. We wouldn't use the term in Baptist terminology, but frankly, the Baptist fundamental movement would be considered Orthodox, whereas those who don't believe that you can count on God's word would not be considered Orthodox. So that gives you an idea of this branch here and that split happening you know, during the 11th century there in the 1000s, in the middle of that century. Now there was another one that happened, and you, you hear me talk about it a fair amount. Uh, before I go into that, just a small mention here, as you can see the Moravian Church comes up. We may talk about that. That's a very small group, an interesting group with certain elements that uh, we also might applaud as well, but uh, that's really a very small group. They, they probably don't deserve to have their, their square be as big as some of the others here. Not to belittle them in any way, but that was a, a small movement. But one of the key points happen as we get into just after 1500. We get into 1517, and trouble's been brewing in the area of Germany at the time called Saxony with a young Catholic monk named Martin Luther. And you know I speak of him frequently. I, I think highly of Luther in many ways. And it's not because I was originally raised Lutheran, but I look at that and I realize, okay, here is something that God powerfully used to reestablish a doctrine that was almost completely disappearing in the 500 or so years before it, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. And he was such a tortured soul. And so when we get in the weeks to come, we'll talk about that and what that means to us and why we should be grateful for it. So that was the beginning of what's called the Protestant Reformation. Protestant meaning not Catholic. Now, people say, well, what about 500 years before that when the East-West split happened? Wasn't that Protestant? Well, no, that really didn't protest the Catholic Church. That protested specifically the Rome Pope. But really, you could, you could make the case that Eastern Orthodoxy, a better term for them, would be Eastern Catholicism, whereas Roman would be Western Catholicism. This was different. And that's one reason why Lutheran is listed as red, because this was the beginning of something totally new. This was a substantial split off. And we'll talk about that and what that started in the early 1500s, because it had implications not only for the Christian faith, it had huge implications for uh, the governments and for those who are, um, you know, who were, who were monarchs. It just very significant. And so these will be things that will be important because they'll help us to understand why we believe what we believe. And then there were reactions to that in other countries that had similar emphasis, although somewhat different. In England, the Anglican Church gets formed, the Church of England. Basically, the King of England, Henry VIII, no longer wanted to have to listen to the Pope. And we'll talk about why that happened. Some of it was because he wanted to divorce his wife. But there were other factors there, too. And then over here, in this section, this started primarily in uh, Switzerland, the Reformed Church. And we'll talk about what that is. 
Now, let's look here at what became of these. This is where it gets interesting. In the Reformed Church, you have groups like Church of Scotland and the Presbyterian Movement, but you also have this group called the Anabaptists, not anti-Baptists, but Anabaptists. And very often it's thought that we trace our lineage to them. And I've said to you many times that Baptists are often taught that, that it's a half-truth. Uh, and I'll talk about why that is when we get a little more in-depth. You can see here from this chart that there's probably a stronger case to be made that the Anabaptists produced the Mennonites and the Amish and to some degree the Brethren churches. But you notice this one right here, down here, today's Evangelical Free Church. Many of us have friends that go to E-Free. As you know, Terry and I spent um, 13 years in the Midland E-Free Church. Uh, a very Baptistic set of doctrines and teachings. And so it's important to understand some of that background. The group of Presbyterianism comes from that Reformed background. We'll talk about why they believe what they believe and how we're different. And then a group that uh, really is not as well known, Christian and Missionary Alliance. So we'll talk about all of these things in the weeks ahead. Let's go back here to this area in England the Church of England, and then it resulted in different splits. And in some cases, these splits were as the Church of England was transplanted to different countries. In America, that became known as the Episcopalian Church. And yet there were different reformational movements that happened within there when the uh, early settlers of America came the Pilgrims and the Puritans. Remember, the Puritans wanted to purify the Church of England, but they came for religious freedom, and they came to not have to be under not only the king, but also to have freedom from the church, to worship as they wished. And many of those early churches were congregational churches, very traditional, very conservative. Most congregational churches today do not fit that descriptor at all. And then I also had talked about in a recent podcast in early December about the history of the Baptist faith in America, here we are. We come along here as these early settlers came to America. And then that went on and divided into different groups, including the largest Baptist group, the Southern Baptist Convention. But you see here, I might say, our theological cousins in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Now over here, the Congregational Church today has formed itself in what would be called the United Church of Christ, which is uh, a quite a liberal denomination, probably the most liberal Christian branch that can make the claim to call itself Christian. And uh, there was another group here, the Quakers, and we'll give them at least a passing mention as well. Now, do you notice some of the other groups here that come out of this line here with the Baptists in early America that go down here and they become the Church of God in Christ. You might say, what's that? Well, we'll get to that, and we'll talk about that. But there was another movement that was happening in England, and then it came to the shores of America there in the 1700s. A man we know his name pretty well because his brother wrote many of the hymns in our hymnal. John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley, and he wanted to do with the Church of England what Luther wanted to do with the Roman Catholic Church. 100 or 150 years earlier. He didn't want to start a new denomination, but it ended up happening. And those that were the followers of John Wesley became the Methodists. And we'll talk about why 
that is and what we can learn from that and how we're different from that. But the Methodists had a stronger emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And so you ended up with some of these movements that came out of Methodism, the holiness movement, that included things like the Church of God and the Assemblies of God and the Church of the Nazarene. Okay, These are different forms of holiness movement churches, different levels of what we would call Pentecostal or charismatic movement today. Methodists are not, but they opened the door to it. Then there was the African Methodist Episcopal Church here. And then some of these divisions, Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, different division than the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. And then some of these movements, Foursquare International, Calvary Chapel, Vineyard Churches. These are different branches of Pentecostal and Charismatic movements where they may speak in tongues, they may hold to certain doctrines we do not. Generally, we acknowledge them as fellow believers because we know there are true believers in there, of course. And yet there are differences. They clearly are not Baptist. Now, that gives you an overview. And this overview is probably uh, <laughs> more confusing than fascinating. And yet at the same time, I hope, I truly hope that you enjoy this. If we don't understand where we've come from, we have trouble explaining it to others. And that's one of the things about being equipped, being equipped to better teach why we believe what we believe. So in the weeks, in the months ahead, I hope you will find this to be very interesting. I hope you will find it to fill out some, some empty spots in your background. I'm going to try and explain it in a way that doesn't make your eyes cross, and because frankly, sometimes it makes mine cross, <laughs> especially when it comes to all the different divisions within Baptists just in America alone. In the end, all of them come from the same root, the teachings of Jesus and the apostles in that first century, with all the history that they came from, from the Old Testament, which, remember, is three-quarters of the Bible. If, if you started reading one 365th of the Bible every day, if you divided it into enough pieces so that you read one day per year, so that by the time you got to the end of the year, you had finished, you realize that it would be about October 1st before you even got into the New Testament? So often, churches that identify themselves as Christian churches have a bad habit of being very thin on the Old Testament. What we're going to be talking about here is history, for the most part, since 1500, and heavy since 1600. But a lot of it won't be here in America. A lot of it will be the roots that happened in Europe. And it will help us why we believe what we believe. I hope you'll find it interesting. I look forward to putting it together for you. Thank you for listening or tuning in, as we used to say in my broadcast days. I do appreciate your support and I do appreciate your time. Have a great week and God bless you.